All right, folks, tonight, the mark of the beast and the seal of God. I'm just curious, is there anyone here for the first time tonight? May I see your hands? First timers? Oh, welcome, welcome. We're glad you're here. We welcome you. <clears throat> Amen. All right. <clears throat> now, friends, tonight's topic is one that is undoubtedly the most shocking message you probably will ever hear in your life. It's a message that is very startling. It's not what most people expect. But it's straight from the Word of God. And so that's all that really matters. Amen? As long as it's from the Word of God. Tonight's message really is uh, building upon a very large foundation of two weeks of presentations. And so for those who are here consistently the last few weeks, you would understand this message, and it's not going to be as shocking. But those who perhaps did not receive the benefit of being here the last few weeks or missed perhaps many of the presentations, you might have some questions afterwards, which is perfectly normal. And would you please let us know if you do. Please come and let us uh, share with you the foundation of presentations. Satan doesn't like this message. He's going to try his best to distract us tonight. So we really need the Holy Spirit to be in this place. So I'm going to ask you two favors. Number one, please pray for me. And number two, please pray for yourself. That God would give me the words and that he would give all of us the ears to hear his word. Amen? And so I, with that in mind, let us pray together as we begin. <clears throat> Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your grace for your love that has drawn us to this place. And Lord, we have come seeking to understand your word and your will for our lives. We're not interested in the opinions of man. We want to hear your voice. So would you please fill this room with your Holy Spirit? Fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Speak to us, Lord, in a special way. And as we tackle this huge message, please, Lord, give us clarity Help us to understand, and more than just understand, give us courage tonight to know that if we make a decision for Jesus, we have nothing to be afraid of, because your perfect love is what casts out fear from our hearts. So please, Lord, bless us, speak to me, and speak through me, my Father, to the hearts of your children tonight. This is our prayer and our desire, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Our message tonight, the mark of the beast and the seal of God, as I mentioned, is perhaps the most shocking message in the Bible and perhaps the most shocking message you will ever hear. You see, friends, when, someone, when someone's heart stops beating and certain death is around the corner, what do those doctors and the medical professionals do in order to cause the heart to start beating once again? What do they, what do they use? Those defibrillators, isn't that right? And you've, you've seen that happen, right, in television? When they rub it and they put it on that person's chest and they say clear and then and they shock the person and it looks so violent, doesn't it? But friends, it is necessary because it's a life and death situation. 
In the same way, sometimes God in his word gives us messages that are shocking. Messages that seem kind of, how could I say it, hard. But he does so because God understands that with some issues, it is truly life or death. Tonight's issue or topic is one of those. Because all those who are going to be saved in the last days are going to receive the seal of God. And all those who are going to be lost are going to receive the mark of the beast. There's no neutral ground. So it's truly life and death. And friends, remember that whenever God gives shocking, startling message, it's only because he's trying to bring us back to life. Amen? It's in love that he sends such messages to us. In fact, Jesus said in the book of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19, as many as I, what? I love, I do what? Rebuke. That word rebuke means to correct, to discipline. And Christ never disciplines and corrects out of anger or frustration, only out of the motivation of infinite love. So he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and do what? Repent. And so the love of God compels him to bring rebuke and chastening, disciplining, correcting messages to us. And keep that in mind, friends, it's only because he loves us. And when that love brings messages as such, it calls us to repent. It calls us to what? Now, that word repent is important. It literally means to change your mind. What does it mean? Because our natural way of thinking and believing is the wrong way. So God brings correcting messages in love to change our way of thinking and change our way of believing. And that's what the mark of the beast issue is all about. And in this message, God is shouting or shocking us in desperate love because many people are confused about the mark of the beast. Many people think that the mark of the beast is some type of computer chip implanted under the skin of the forehead, or maybe a barcode with the number 666, or some type of tattoo or biometrics device, or some type of smart card or universal identification number. Well, friends, you have to know from the very beginning that that's not the mark of the beast. The devil is a lot more subtle than crafty than a computer chip. You see, computer chips might happen, but that's not the mark of the beast because the mark of the beast is not a technological issue. It is a moral issue that has to do with your forehead, which is the seat of your intelligence. The forehead that, 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 that where, where your frontal lobe, the frontal lobe of your brain is, that's the cerebral cortex. It is the frontal lobe, the forehead, that is the seat of your reason and your conscience and your morality. It's where your belief system is held. It's where your decisions are made. And so while computer chips and such might happen, that's not the mark of the beast. And so what we need to do is we need to separate the two issues of how the mark is going to be enforced in contrast to what the mark of the beast is. Now, many people get confused about this issue because they merge those two. Uh, what the mark of the beast is is a totally separate issue from how the mark of the beast is going to be enforced. And we cannot talk about the enforcement of the mark unless we first know what the mark is. Are you with me on that? So we'll talk about the enforcement a little bit tonight, but put that to the side. 
The enforcement, yes, they might use a computer chip to enforce it, but what it is is something totally different. And so the bulk of our message tonight will be dealing with what exactly is the mark of the beast. Well, God gives us this warning in the book of Revelation chapter 14. And so if you take your Bible and open there with me, Revelation, what chapter are we going to? Chapter 14, where we find the warning against the mark of the beast. And Pastor Kevin, can you give me a bottle of water maybe? Fetch me something? I appreciate that. Revelation chapter 14, beginning with verse 6, the Bible says, and if you're there, would you please say amen? And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting what? And friends, what does gospel mean? So keep that in mind, friends. It's, even though it's a shocking, startling, solemn, and serious message, it's a part of the gospel, which doesn't mean bad news. It doesn't mean scary news. It means good news. So what you're going to hear tonight, friends, is a good news, get happy, and get excited message. It says, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto who? To them that dwell on the earth, to how many nations? Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So notice, friends, that this warning, this gospel message, before Jesus comes in the last days, everyone in the world is going to have an opportunity to hear it and thus make a decision concerning it. Everyone in the last days are going to have an opportunity to hear it and thus make a decision concerning it. So no one can plead ignorance on this issue in the last days. While previous generations might not have been able to hear it, the final generation, those who live in the last days, you and me, will have an opportunity. And so notice what it says, verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And do what? <clears throat> And worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. And so we find that the first part of this everlasting global gospel message is an invitation to worship the true God, the one that made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Now, it's not only an invitation to true worship, but a part of this same message is a strong warning against false worship. Notice jumping down to verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a what kind of voice? Loud voice. God is shouting in this, in this prophecy, friends. A loud, startling voice. In fact, in the original Greek, when it says loud voice, the Greek word is, 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 the, is where we get the English word megaphone. Loud voice, a megaphone, trying to get our attention. Saying with a loud voice, if any man do a worship the beast and his image, and received his mark in his forehead or in his hand. Here's the warning, verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no what? rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image. And whosoever receives the mark of his name, just a little point there, notice that those who receive the mark of the beast have no rest. They are restless. And we're going to see tonight the reason why they have no rest is because they have rejected the rest of God. 
specifically the rest day of God. So notice, those who receive the mark have no rest. And in this passage, the word worship is mentioned twice because the mark of the beast issue deals with worship. And friends, what we just read there in Revelation 14, 9 through 11 is the strongest, most startling, most urgent warning in all of the Scripture. Now, friends, I want you to think with me. If God gives such a strong warning against those who worship the beast and receive the mark of the beast, if he gives such a strong warning against it, surely he would make it clear who the beast is and what the mark of the beast is so we know exactly what we are to avoid. Isn't that right? I mean, God wouldn't give such a strong warning and leave us to guess and speculate. No, friends, God is a just and fair God. And so if he gives a strong warning, he's also going to make it abundantly clear as to what it is. Are you with me on that? And so it's going to be clear tonight. But notice as we lay the foundation, in this message is a contrast of worshipers. Those who worship the true creator God, the one that made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, in verse 7, in contrast to those who worship the, 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 the beast, the counterfeit antichrist beast system, as described in verses 9 through 11. And so we find that the, 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 the mark of the beast issue has to do with worship, friends. This is the central issue regarding the mark of the beast. In fact, if you write down these scriptures, every time in Revelation the mark of the beast is mentioned, it's always in connection with false worship. You can find that in Revelation 16:2, 19:20 and 24. Revelation 16:2, 19:20 and 24. When the mark of the beast is mentioned, it's always in connection with false worship. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. Now, if the mark of the beast has to do with false worship, then it would be important for us to first understand true worship. Because before we can talk about the counterfeit, we have to study and become acquainted with the genuine. Are you with me? And so now the next question as we continue. What is the basis of all true worship? In other words, why is God worthy of our worship? Here's the reason. Write it down. Revelation 4, verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. But why is God worthy to receive that? It gives the reason, For thou hast done what? Created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The Bible here tells us clearly that God is worthy of worship. He's worthy of our glory and honor and power because He is the creator. He is the maker. He is the life giver and the life sustainer. And because He made us, he is worthy of our worship. Can you say amen? And that's the reason why it's a sin to worship anything but God. Because only God is the one that gave us life. And to put someone in the place of God when, <clears throat> when that person hasn't given you life is idolatry. It could be a relationship or it could be a job. Maybe some people esteem their job so much that that's, that comes as a priority more than God. Or maybe it's the relationships in the community and the, and, 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 and the work that they do, or it could be whatever it is. Whatever is first place in your life is your God. Whatever you're putting ahead of God is your God. And friends, we should not put anything ahead of God because God is the one that gave us life. Can you say amen? Now the next question is, has God left us a sign of his creative authority? Has he? Absolutely. 
And friends, what was that sign that God created to remind us that He is our Creator? It was none other than the seven-day Sabbath, friends. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, we studied this before, that when God created the world, He then created the seventh day of the week, and the Bible says He blessed that day, and He sanctified that day. He did what? The word sanctified means to set apart for a holy use. In other words, God set apart the seventh day of the week from the rest of the six days of the week because the six days were to be common work days, but the seventh day would be the holy day of the Lord. And God created this day to remind us that He made all things, that He is the true God and the true Creator, and He calls us to remember and worship, especially on that day. And as we read before in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11, in the fourth commandment, God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but what? It doesn't say a seventh day. It says thee. That's a definite article. The seventh day is the Sabbath of who? Not the Jews, but the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. And then in the commandment itself, God gives us the reason why we are to remember and keep the Sabbath holy, and he points us back to creation as a reason. It tells us for. Another word for for is because. For in six days the Lord, what? made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That's the same word as sanctified, to set apart for a holy use. And so it's interesting, friends, that, 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 that this is the only commandment in the ten that God specifically uses the word remember. And the reason why is because God knew that of the ten commandments, this is the main one people would forget. And isn't that true? All the churches in the world, they haven't forgotten the nine commandments. The commandment that says, thou shalt not kill. Oh, yes, we shouldn't kill. Thou shalt not steal, commit adultery, bear false witness, honor thy father and mother. No one has a problem with nine commandments, friends. Everyone has remembered the nine, but that fourth one, people have forgotten. The very one that God specifically said, remember. But it's that very commandment that's to remind us that God is our creator and that He is worthy of our worship because He made all things. Now, God knew that we would forget, and that's the reason why, if you notice, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, that expression is repeated in Revelation 14 in verse 7. Worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. In other words, what we're reading in Revelation 14, the everlasting end-time global gospel message is a direct quotation from the fourth commandment. When it says worship him that made all those things, it's referring back to the Sabbath commandment, which is a memorial that God is worthy of our worship because he is the creator. And so we find a contrast of worshipers once again. Those who worship the creator on the Sabbath versus those who worship the beast and receive the mark of of the beast, which gives us our first clue as to what the mark of the beast is, and I want you to write it down. Clue number one is that whatever the mark is, it will involve counterfeit worship. It will involve what? Counterfeit or false worship. In contrast to true worship, 
The mark of the beast deals with false or counterfeit worship. Now, friends, we need to understand that the, for every truth, there's a counterfeit. And it's interesting that the mark of the beast, as we read, is placed in two main places. In what places are they? The forehead or the hand. The forehead or in the hand. Now, what does that mean? The forehead, that's where the frontal lobe of your brain is. That's your mind. And in the Bible, a person's hand is a symbol of their works or actions. Now, the mark of the beast is a counterfeit of something that God wants to place in the forehead and hand of his people. And friends, do you know what God wants to place in our forehead or in our hand? His holy law. Notice what it says in the book of Exodus chapter 13 and verse 9. Please write it down. Exodus 13, 9, the Bible says, And it shall be for a sign unto, unto thee upon thine what? Hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes. And what is between your eyes? That's your forehead, friend. That's the frontal lobe of your brain. That's your mind. It says, Unto thy hand a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's what? Law may be in thy mouth. So, friends, according to this passage, what does God want to place between our eyes and in our hand? His holy law, friends. And that doesn't mean that he's going to literally write it there or stamp it there. It simply means that God wants our thoughts and our actions to be governed by his holy law of love. Does that make sense? And that's the new covenant promise, isn't it? God says he's going to write his law in our hearts and minds. He wants our thoughts, our motives, our intentions, as well as our outward actions not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. He wants everything of us to be governed by the law of love. And so, just as God wants to place his law in our mind and hand, Satan wants to put the mark of the beast in the mind and in the hand, which shows that the second clue as to what the mark of the beast is, is that it must be a counterfeit law that opposes God's law. It must be a counterfeit law that opposes God's law. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now, the third characteristic as to what the mark of the beast is, is this. Whatever it is, it requires government or political enforcement. It requires political enforcement. How do we know? Because Revelation 13, verse 16 and 17 describes a beast that will be, be the one to enforce the mark. Notice what it says, and we don't have the time to study this tonight. I usually have a whole presentation on this. Unfortunately, in these three weeks that we're here, we didn't have enough nights to give it to you, but you're more than welcome to get or borrow the DVDs for it. But notice what it says. And he, talking about this earth beast, and do you remember what a beast represents in prophecy? A kingdom or a political power, Daniel 7, 17, and 23. So we're talking about a not an animal, but a kingdom or a political power. Notice what this kingdom would do. And he, what is this word right here? Causes all. What is another word for cause? Force. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to what? Receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. So whatever the mark of the beast is, it requires a political power to enforce it upon people. Characteristic three, write it down. It, it requires government or political enforcement. It must be enforced by a law of the government. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Yeah. 
Now, the fourth characteristic of the mark is that it's the counterfeit of God's seal. Notice, friends, for every truth God has, Satan has a counterfeit. And what is a counterfeit? It's basically truth and error mixed. A counterfeit is something that looks real, seems real, sounds real, but it's fake. And so God has a mark that he places on his people. It's actually called the seal of God. And so because God has a mark, the devil has invented a mark as well. And so what exactly is the mark of the beast? Before we can know, we have to first find out what the seal of God is. We have to know what exactly Satan is trying to counterfeit. Are you with me? Okay, so now let's take some time to explain what is the seal of the living God. And the Bible talks about it in Revelation 7, verse 2 and 3. Please write it down. Revelation 7, 2 and 3, it says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to what? Hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have what? Sealed who? The servants of our God where? In their foreheads. So notice, friends, what, what we're reading here, we don't have the time to explain it in detail, but there are these angels that are about to let go of some winds that are going to destroy the earth. A great time of trouble, a tribulationary period, people call it. Once these angels accomplish their mission, the tribulation will be let loose, probation will be closed, but just before they go out, the servants of God are going to be sealed in their foreheads. This is the seal of the living God that God's people must have before the angels hurt the earth and the sea and all that in them is. And here's the reason. The purpose of the seal is to preserve God's people. If you're to go to a grocery store and buy a jar of food or a can of food, in order for you to know that that food has been properly preserved, that jar or can will have a what? A seal. You see, the seal is a sign that it hasn't been tampered with. The seal, the purpose of it is to preserve. And so too, those who are going to live in the last days and experience the great tribulation, the only ones that are going to make it through are those who have the seal of God. That seal will preserve God's people from being spoiled by the devil in the time of trouble. Friends, whatever the seal is, I want it. How about you? Amen? And notice where it's placed, friends. Where is the seal of God placed? In the forehead. Now, where was the mark of the beast placed? Forehead or hand, but the seal is only placed in the forehead. Do you know why? As we mentioned before, the forehead is the mind, the frontal lobe, the cerebral cortex. The hand is a symbol of a person's work or action. See, many people will receive the mark of the beast in the forehead because they're going to believe that it's the right thing to do. In other words, they're going to be deceived in their mind. They receive it in their mind. They're deceived. They actually believe that this is the right thing to do. Now, others may not be deceived. Others may not may know in their mind that this is not what they, what they should do. However, they will receive it in their hand. In other words, they will support it with their works and actions out of convenience. Why? Because they realize that if they don't, they're not going to be able to buy or sell. They will be cut off economically. And so to preserve their right to buy and sell and have all the luxuries of life, they'll say, yeah, I don't believe it in my mind, but I'm just going to go along with it. They'll receive it in their hand. With their works and actions, they will support it. 
And so those people will receive it in their hand. But when it comes to the seal of God, you can only receive it in the forehead. Why? Because we can never work our way to heaven with our actions and our works. We must believe by faith in our minds. Can you say amen? Does that make sense? We must believe the truth in our mind. That's why the seal is not placed in the hand. It's only placed in the forehead. Now, what exactly is this seal? Well, all we have to do is ask, well, what else does God want to place in the forehead? And here's the answer. Hebrews 8 verse 10 is the new covenant promise where the Bible tells us, I will put my what? Laws into their what? Mind. And I will write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. The new covenant promise puts the law of God in our hearts and minds. And God says, I'm going to write it there and tell me, friends, why do you write things down? so that you do not forget, right? You're writing, you're taking notes, right? You're writing things down so that you can remember. Interesting word. Very important word. God wants to write his law in our hearts and minds so that we remember. And so we see that the seal of God and the law of God are both placed in the forehead or the mind, which shows that they must be connected somehow. And that's exactly what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16. Please write it down. Isaiah 8, 16, it says, Bind up the testimony, seal the what? Law among my disciples. And so interesting, do you see it? God's seal and God's law are connected because what exactly is sealed in the forehead is none other than the law of God, friends. This is the new covenant promise that God told us he would do for us. And so God's seal is actually found in God's holy law. In other words, as we examine the Ten Commandments, the law of God, we can actually find out what exactly the seal of God is. Because listen, friends, the seal, a seal is not just a, a preserving agent, but a seal is also a sign of authenticity. It's a stamp of approval. You see, every government has a seal which is the, 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 the sign of its power. And friends, including God's government, he has a seal as well. Now, a government or a, a, an official seal will always have three main things. The person's name, person's title, and the territory over which he governs or reigns. Name, title, and territory. So for example, the seal of the United States of America for the president, if he has a document that, that he wants to seal, it will have his name, Barack Obama, our current president, his title, president, his territory, the United States of America. And whenever there's that seal on the document, that seal invests the document with power. It's a sign that it's an authentic document. It's not a fake. It's not a counterfeit. It's the real deal. That's what the seal does. It's a sign of authenticity. Does that make sense? And so now the next question is this. If God's seal is found in God's holy law, then which in of the Ten Commandments contains God's name, God's title, and God's territory? Of the ten, which one has those three things? It's none other than the fourth commandment, friends. Let's see if we can find it. Going back to Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the, what's his name? 
Lord thy God. That's Jehovah, Yahweh. The Lord thy God, that's his name. In it thou shalt not do any work. And then it says, for in six days the Lord, what's his title? Made, and what's his territory? Heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. So we find interesting, friends, that in the fourth commandment, we find God's seal. We see his name, the Lord thy God, his title, the maker or the creator, and his territory, heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. So we find something very beautiful. When you let the Bible interpret itself, you find that God's seal is actually the fourth commandment. And that makes sense. You know why? Because remember, the fourth commandment is to remind us that God is the creator. And as our creator, he is worthy of our what? Worship. And we should not worship anything or anyone else because God is creator. And that's what the Sabbath reminds us, friends. And no wonder why Satan wants to attack the Sabbath because that's the one that reminds us that God is God. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Oh, but it's going to make even more sense. Notice what the Bible says in Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Notice what it says concerning the Sabbath. Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a what? God has given the Sabbaths to be a sign, a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that does what? Sanctify them. So God, another reason he gave the Sabbath is not just to remind us that he is the creator, but also as a sign for us to know that he is the true Lord and the one that sanctifies us. Now remind me, what does the word sanctified mean? To set apart for a holy use. The same way God sanctified the seventh day of the week and he set it apart from the rest of the six and made it holy, he wants to do that in us. He wants to sanctify us. He wants to set us apart from the world and he wants to make us holy. He wants to change our lives. And friends, when you keep the Sabbath, it's not because you're trying to work your way to heaven. But keeping the Sabbath means the exact opposite to that. It's a sign that you're acknowledging that the Lord is the one that sanctifies you, that you can never by your own good works and your deeds and your works of righteousness, that you can never, 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 never sanctify or save yourself. We're saved and sanctified only by the grace of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? When you keep the Sabbath, you're saying, Lord, I understand that if I work seven days a week, I cannot work my way to heaven. Thus, I'm resting on the day that you set apart because I'm resting in the work that you are doing in my life. I could never work my way to heaven. And so, we find that the Sabbath is a sign that the Lord is sanctifying us. It's a what? Now, friends, I want you to notice another word for sign is seal. Another word for sign is seal. How do we know? Because notice what the Bible says. Romans 4, verse 11. Write it down. This is talking about Abraham, the father of faith. It says, and he received the what? Sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith. What two words in that passage are interchangeable and synonymous? The word sign and seal, friends. A sign is also a seal. You see, remember when God gave to Abraham the sign of circumcision? That sign, the outward cutting away of the flesh in circumcision, that was an outward symbol or sign of what God wanted to do in the hearts of his people in making them righteous by faith. In other words, the cutting away of the flesh 
was an outward sign of how God wanted to cut away the fleshly, carnal desires of our hearts and make us righteous by faith. In the same way, friends, the Sabbath is also an outward sign, resting physically and not working. It's an outward sign of the inward experience of resting in the love of God and the work that He's doing in us as He sanctifies us day by day. Does that make sense, friends? And so we're trying to find out what is the seal of God, and over and over again we see that the seal of God's law is the Sabbath. It's a sign, which is also a seal of His authority and the work He's doing for us in our hearts. Now notice one more line of evidence. In Revelation 14, verse 1, notice what else is placed up in the forehead or minds of God's people. It says in Revelation 14, 1, And then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing upon Mount Zion, and with him an 144,000, having his father's what? Name written on their what? So the Bible says that this final group of people in the last days are going to have the father's name written in their foreheads. Now, what exactly does that mean? What is the Father's name? Well, he goes by many names, but here's one of them. In Galatians 4 and verse 6, write it down. The Bible says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the what? Spirit of His Son, that's Jesus, the Spirit of His Son, into your hearts, crying out, what are we going to cry out? Abba, Father. He is the Father, we are the sons. And when the Spirit of Jesus comes into our hearts, it will cause us to look upon God and cry out to our Lord saying, Abba, Father. That's one of God the Father's names, Abba. And friends, that word Abba is a, is a, is a term of endearment. It's like saying Daddy. In other words, friends, God is not just your faithful Father. He's your dear heavenly Daddy. And that, the word Daddy is, is what the little ones call their fathers. The little ones that are so helpless and can't do nothing for themselves and totally defenseless, they cry out to their, to their daddy. And friends, that's how God wants us to look upon him as our daddy. Can you say amen? It, it, it comes from an individual that recognizes that we can't do any, I can't do anything for myself. I'm defenseless. I'm hopeless. I make a mess. I'm a little child. I don't know how to come in or go out. And so I'm depending on you, my Abba Father, my Heavenly Daddy, to protect me and to guide me and to lead me and to help me to live. It's basically saying, I can't save myself. I'm trusting in you, Daddy, to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Abba, Father, heavenly daddy now friends is something interesting the father's name written in the forehead abba father that means that your mindset concerning god is that he is your daddy and you are his little babe that can't do anything for yourself you're totally dependent on him does that make sense isn't that beautiful that's a better way to live by the way because when you think about it when you're in control you may be able to do some things right but in all our righteousness are filthy rags. We must depend upon Him. And so God's name, or the Father's name, Abba Father, placed in the forehead of the people, as well as God's seal. Interesting, notice the word Sabbath and the word Abba, both in English and in the original language. What word do you see in the word Sabbath? You see the word Abba. 
Do you know why? Because that's what the Sabbath teaches us about. We are resting in the work that God is doing for us. We remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy because we're, we're remembering that, God, I can't save myself. I did not bring myself into this world. You are my creator, but you're not just my creator. You're my father. You're my daddy. You're my savior, my sanctifier. And so the Sabbath teaches us about this experience of complete dependence upon God. Is that beautiful? It is so beautiful, friends. In fact, if you were to study the etymological origin of the word Sabbath, break it down syllable by syllable, the etymological origin of the word Sabbath, it means the sign of the revered Father. The sign that acknowledges our total dependence on God, that we are resting in the work that He's doing for us in saving us from sin. And so we find, friends, very clear that the seventh-day Sabbath is the seal of God's law. If that's clear, would you please say amen? And that's the fourth clue as to what the mark of the beast could be because remember, the mark is the counterfeit of the seal. Therefore, number four, write it down. The mark of the beast is a counterfeit to God's sign, God's seal, which is God's Sabbath. Whatever the mark of the beast is, it's the counterfeit of God's seal or God's Sabbath. Now, friends, with just that, we can probably guess right now, but we're not going to guess. We want to know for sure from the Bible. But let's go a little bit further with the seal of God, the seal of God business. The question I want to ask right now is, how does the Lord seal His people? How does He seal you and me? Well, notice what happens. In Ephesians 4 and verse 30, the Bible says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are what? sealed for the day of redemption. So who seals us? The Holy Spirit, friends. The Spirit of God cannot be seen with, literal, with, with your eyes. It's an unseen work, which shows that the seal is not some literal stamp. It's the work of the invisible Spirit in your heart, in your life, in your mind. The Spirit is what seals us, but how does the Holy Spirit seal us? The Bible gives the answer in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. Write it down. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says that God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So how does the Holy Spirit seal us? By sanctifying us in belief in not opinions and traditions, but belief in the truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit's job, friends, as Jesus said, the Spirit of truth is to guide us into all truth. And when we understand truth in our minds, that understanding of truth in our mind brings about a sanctifying experience in our hearts. In other words, what we know in our mind begins to change our lives. It begins to set us apart for holiness. It makes differences in our character, in our words, in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our actions. When you understand truth, it makes a difference in your life because the truth shall make you free. Can you say amen? And that experience is sanctification. Just like God sanctified the seventh day, you're being sanctified as you believe and understand the truth. And so when you when, when, when the truth that you believe in your mind 
begins to sanctify and change your life, that's the seal, which is the sign of authenticity. It's the stamp of approval. It shows that you're not just a professor of religion. You don't just have head knowledge. You have a hard experience. You have an authentic walk with Jesus. You love him. It's not just an intellectual belief, but it's actually sanctifying. It's changing your heart. And as a result, God can place his seal upon you. This is not a counterfeit Christian. This is a genuine Christian that has a real walk with me. He's trusting and depending completely on me for his salvation. And thus, we receive the seal of God. It's the stamp of approval, the sign of authenticity. And that sanctifying experience in our hearts is what's going to preserve us from being spoiled during the time of tribulation. Oh, friends, I want the seal of God. How about you? Here it is in plain language, friends. Here it is, what I just said. <clears throat> what is the seal of God? <clears throat> Here it is. The seal of God is the sign that we have an authentic Christian experience. Why? Not just because we can sing and, and shout and pray and worship. Anybody can do that because talk is cheap. The seal of God is the sign that we have an authentic Christian experience. Why? Because the truth that we believe in our mind has brought a transformation in our lives. That's how the Holy Spirit seals us. It's not just head knowledge and lip service. It's a hard experience. We're serving God both in spirit and in truth. And as a result, we have the seal of God. And that seal is going to preserve us, preserve our minds during the time of trouble. And friends, if that makes sense, if that's logical, if that's congruent, and more than that, if that's biblical, let me hear you say amen. amen. Now, friends, no wonder why Satan hates the Sabbath. Now you, now you see, don't you? You always thought, well, what's the big deal? It's just a day. But now you understand why the devil attacks that commandment more than any others. Because he knows that the Sabbath is the outward sign of the inward experience of being sealed by the Holy Spirit for salvation. The devil knows, friends, he attacks the Sabbath because he knows that it's the sign of God's law or the seal of God's law. And the basis of all true worship, God is the creator, but he, Satan, wants to be God, so he wants to make a counterfeit to that. And that's the first day of the week. You see, friends, the mark of the beast has nothing to do with technology. It has nothing to do with the computer chip. This left-behind series and futuristic theology is, is deceiving individuals. It has nothing. Remember, how it's going to be enforced is a totally separate issue from what the mark of the beast is. We're dealing with what it is before we can talk about how it's enforced. It's a moral issue. It has to do with the frontal lobe of your brain, the seat of your reason, conscience, your morality. Whoever has your mind will determine your thoughts and feelings, which will determine your words and actions, which will form your habits, which will shape your character, which will determine your destiny. Whoever has the mind will ultimately determine the destiny, and that's what the mark of the beast and seal of God issue is all about. Does that make sense? All right. Now with that foundation, let's go to Revelation 13. We'll proceed to answer the question. Now, now that we know what the genuine is, what the seal of God is, the Sabbath as the outward sign and being sanctified by the Spirit, which is the inward seal. We know what the genuine is. Now we can know what the counterfeit is and notice what it is. Revelation 13, we're, ask, we're asking the question, what is the mark of the beast? 
Well, how many want to know what the mark of the beast is? Do you want to know? Well, let me just tell you right now. Are you ready for this? If you want to know what the mark of the beast is, let me hear you say amen. amen. Are you sure? <laughs> well, here it is, friends. The mark of the beast is the mark of the beast. <laughs> I'm serious. That was profound, wasn't it? <laughs> but listen, friends, I'm serious about that. The mark of the beast is the mark of the beast. It's the beast's mark. Here's the point. Many people are trying to find out what the mark is when they don't even have a clue who the beast is. But it is impossible to know the mark unless we first know the beast. Why? Because the mark of the beast is the mark of the beast. Are you with me? <laughs> and so now all we have to do is this. All we have to do is find out who's the beast. And when we understand the exact identity of the beast, then it becomes easy to understand or know what the mark is. Because all we have to do is ask the beast, hey beast, what's your mark? And the beast will tell us its mark. Are you with me? And friends, the word beast is not meant to be a derogatory term because we know that in prophecy, a beast represents a kingdom or a political power. And so let's find out who is this beast. We're in Revelation 13, beginning with verse 1. If you're there, would you please say amen? Revelation 13, verse 1. And friends, I'm going to have to... I'm going to need some extra time tonight. I hope, you don't, I hope you're not in a rush to leave, but I need some extra time to make this message clear. You don't mind, do you? All right, Revelation 13, verse 1. I promise we won't charge you more. It says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. The beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, the who? The dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. What does this mean? If you ever see an animal like this, don't run, just pray. Obviously, it's not literal. It represents something. Well, what does it mean? We don't have to guess because the Bible is, it, it's, is its own interpreter. So write these scriptures down quickly. We don't have the time to look them up. We already studied this before. <clears throat> we learned that a beast represents a kingdom, Daniel 7, verse 23. Waters represent a populated area, Revelation 17, 15. The seven heads on the beast represent seven mountains, according to Revelation 17, 9. The ten horns on the beast represent ten kings or kingdoms, according to Daniel 7 and verse 24. So... What God is communicating <clears throat> or describing is a kingdom that rises up out of a populated area of people that sits on seven mountains and rules over seven kings or other kingdoms. That's what it means, friend, when you let the Bible interpret itself. Now, who is the one that empowered the beast? Who is the one that is backing the beast with power and gave the beast its seat and authority. The Bible says that it was the dragon that gave him the, its power, seat, and great authority. So the next question is this. Well, who's the dragon that empowers this kingdom? Well, we know that the dragon is Satan, amen? That's clear. We studied that before. 
but Satan works through human instruments. Notice how the dragon is described in Revelation 12 and verse 4. The Bible says that the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to deliver, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. So the dragon, who is Satan, tried to destroy Jesus as soon as he was born into the world. But who did Satan use to try to kill baby Jesus? Do you remember? King Herod of the pagan Roman Empire. He inspired Herod to issue a decree, a law, to kill all male children under the age of two in the little town of Bethlehem, thus fulfilling the prophecy. The dragon sought to devour the child Jesus as soon as he was born. You see, friends, it's Satan, of course, but specifically Satan working through the pagan Roman Empire. You see, friends, it was a Roman official that tried to kill baby Jesus. A Roman governor condemned him. His name was Pilate. A Roman executioner crucified him. A Roman emblem sealed the tomb, and a Roman guard watched the tomb. And so the dragon, friends, is Satan, but specifically Satan working through which empire? The pagan Roman Empire. And so it is the pagan Roman Empire that empowers this antichrist beast that has a mark that he wants to place in our forehead and hand. So all we have to do now is this. In order to find out who the antichrist beast is, we just have to ask, to whom did the pagan Roman Empire transfer their power and their seat and their authority to? Because whoever pagan Rome gave their power to, that's the beast. Are you with me? And so, what does history tell us? Here's what history says. You're going to get all these quotes on your way out tonight. Professor of history at University of Rome said this. To the succession of the Caesars, that is the Caesars of the pagan Roman Empire, of course, came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave what? His seat to who? To the pontiff. The dragon gave to the beast his power, seat, and authority. Notice another one, history. The popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting what? Their power, prestige, and titles from paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. You see, the pagan Roman Empire, when it dissolved, when it fell apart, they gave their power to papal Rome, the bishop of Rome. In other words, the Roman church state system. Notice another one. History tells us that she, talking about the Vatican City and the papacy, she received her capital city and power from pagan Rome. The dragon, Satan working through pagan Rome, is the, now transfers its power, seat, and authority to the papacy, friends, the Roman Catholic church state system. And that is the Antichrist beast. Now, let me be quick to remind us, as we've been doing so night after night, we're not talking about the people in the system because many of God's people are in that system. Can you say amen? There are sincere, wonderful individuals in, uh, that are part of the Roman church state system that love God. Beautiful, wonderful people living up to all the light they know. And many of them are going to be saved in God's eternal kingdom. And so we're not talking about individuals. The Bible is describing the system itself. Why? Because he loves the people in the system. Can you say amen? 
And so no one needs to feel attacked or personally offended by this. We're not talking about individuals. We're talking about the system. That's what God is referring to. So characteristic number one, write it down. Who is the beast? It would be a Roman power. That's the first. I'm going to give you eight characteristics tonight. That's the first one. Let's notice another one. Revelation 13, verse 8. You can look in your Bible. It's also on the screen. It says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall what? Worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the Bible tells us that this beast will receive worship. Individuals will worship the beast, which shows that the beast is not just a kingdom or a political power. If it receives worship, that means it also has to be a religious power. And indeed, friends, the papacy is not just a kingdom, but it is a universal system of worship. It's not just a state, but it is a church-state union together. So that's the second characteristic. It would be a worldwide religious power. Now notice as we go to another characteristic, verse 7, that power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So this beast exercised power over all the other king, kindreds, tongues, and nations of the world. And that's what those ten horns represent. Remember the ten horns on the beast? Represents divided Europe, divided Rome. And notice what history says. Under him, talking about the Pope, was very nearly made good the papal claim that all earthly sovereigns were merely vassals of the Roman pontiff. Almost all the kings and princes of Europe swore fealty to him as their overlord. Rome was once more the mistress of the world. And that's true, friends. All the kings of Europe, the king of France, the king of Germany, the king of England, the kings and queens of Europe, they bowed down to the dictates of the bishop of Rome. The papacy exercised power over all the other kingdoms of Europe during this time period, known as the Dark Ages. Notice another one, history. At length, a second empire will arise. And of this empire, the pope will be the master. More than this, he will be the master of Europe. He will dictate his orders to kings who will obey them. And so we find, friends, that the beast or the Antichrist, it cannot be one single person, but rather it is a succession of persons. It's not an individual, but rather it's an office, a succession of persons, a religious political system that is ruled by man. That's who the Antichrist is, not a single person, but a succession of persons in a specific office that claims to be God on earth. And so characteristic three, write it down. It would be a religious power that would dominate civil powers. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Notice the next characteristic. We're jumping to verse six. It says, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So the Bible says that the beast would speak blasphemy against God. Now, what is blasphemy? There are two biblical definitions I want to share with you tonight. How many? Two definitions of what blasphemy is, and we're going to get it straight from the Bible. In John 10, the Bible says that the Jews answered Jesus saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for what? Blasphemy. Because that thou, being a man, maketh thyself God. And so the Jews were accusing Christ of blasphemy because as a man, he was making himself God. And because of that, they wanted to stone him. 
Now, friends, was Jesus guilty of blasphemy? Yes or no? No. Why? Because he, he is God, and he became man as well. Can you say amen? But nonetheless, the biblical definition of blasphemy is when a man on earth claims to be God. And the Antichrist does exactly that. Notice what they say concerning themselves. Pope Leo XIII said, We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. The Bible would define that statement as a blasphemous statement. Notice another one. This is what the church says concerning themselves. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of the flesh. Another blasphemous statement. Notice another one. Pope Pius V. The Pope and God are the same. So he has power in heaven and earth. Now this is what they say concerning themselves. Notice that we can read quote after quote. Here's another one. The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God and the vicar of God, claiming to be God on earth. Here's one more. To believe that our Lord God the Pope has not the power to decree as he is decreed is to be deemed heretical. And so again, the papacy speaks blasphemy because they claim that the Pope or the man at the head is not just a representative, but is God himself. Now, I know that many Catholics and many people don't believe this, but this is the official understanding and teaching of the church, and the church claims infallibility. In other words, whatever they have said in the past is infallible, even though many of it has contradicted itself. Now, I want you to notice the second definition of blasphemy in the Bible is Luke 5, verse 21. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but who? God alone. Again, they're accusing Christ of blasphemy because as a man, he was claiming to forgive sins. But was Jesus guilty? No. Why? Because he is a man, and he's, he's God at the same time, and he can forgive sins. But nonetheless, the biblical definition of blasphemy is when a man claims to forgive sins, have the power to claim sin, forgive sins. Now, notice what the, 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 the papacy says concerning themselves. There is a man on earth who can forgive sins, and that man is the Catholic priest. Yes, beloved brethren, the priest not only declares that the sinner is forgiven, but he really forgives him. And that's a blasphemous statement. Notice another one, the dignity and duty of the priest. These volumes of books are still being used to teach individuals going into the priesthood even till today. And notice what it said in volume 12, page 2. God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priests and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest precedes and God subscribes to it. The Bible says that that's blasphemy. In fact, Pope John Paul II said, quote, don't go to God for forgiveness of sins. Come to me. And that's a blasphemous statement. And, that's, and that begs the question, friends, how can a sinner forgive another sinner of sin? You see, the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Can you say amen? And that's why we should never confess our sins to a man. We should only confess our sins to God because God is the only one without sin. And as the only one without sin, He's the only one that has authority to forgive us of our sins. And the reason why this is a blasphemous statement, because the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And who is that? The man, Christ 
Jesus. Jesus was tempted in all points, yet without sin. And therefore, He is our one mediator that we need to confess our sins to. And so, characteristic number four, it would speak blasphemy against God. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? <coughs> I know this is shocking, friends. Hold on to your seats. Verse 5, and He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and He was given authority to continue for how long? Forty-two months. So, the Bible actually tells us how long the beast would reign for 42 months. Now, are these literal or are they prophetic months? Of their, their prophetic months because it's in a prophetic context. And we learned before that uh, in, in prophecy, a day equals a what? A year. And so, if you break it down, 42 months is the same thing as three and a half prophetic years, which is the exact same thing as 1260 prophetic days. This time period is mentioned seven times in Daniel and Revelation. It's describing the same time period. It's 1260 prophetic days, 42 months, three and a half pro prophetic years. In prophecy, a day equals a year, according to Ezekiel 4 6 and Numbers 14 34. Thus, 42 months, 1260 days would be 1260 literal years. And that's how long the power, the papacy would reign, the Antichrist would reign for which shows again that it cannot be a man, friends. It can't be one single individual, but rather an office or a succession of persons, a kingdom. Now, notice what history says. Vigilius ascended the papal chair in what year? 538 AD under the military protection of Belisarius. It was in this year, 538 AD, that the papacy had supreme power over all the kings of Europe. Of Europe. It's, it was in that year that they began to reign with full absolute authority over Europe. Now, 538 plus 42 prophetic months, which is 1260 literal years later, brings us to the year 1798 where the papacy would lose its power. It would reign for this time period, and in history, this time period is known as the Dark Ages. Now, notice what the papacy would do during this time period in verse 7. It was given unto him to do what? To make war with the saints and to overcome them. In other words, during this time of papal supremacy, the, the beast would try to destroy God's people, making war with the saints, and that's a sad history, and that's exactly what happened. Public ecclesiastical law, church law, said this. The church may by divine right confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their persons, and condemn them to the flames. In our age, the right to inflict the severest penalties, even death, belongs to the church. And there is no graver offense than heresy. Therefore, it must be rooted out. And friends, history tells us that not less than 50 million Christians died during the Dark Ages by the hands of the Roman Catholic church-state system. And friends, their crime, what they called heresy, was that they wanted to follow the teachings of the Bible and not the traditions of the church. And they died in cruel and torturous ways, but many of those martyrs went to death triumphantly because they would rather die for Jesus than to live a lie for Satan. And friends, we can find a lot of inspiration from those martyrs. And so we find our fifth characteristic. The Antichrist beast would be a persecuting power that would reign for exactly 1260 years. And so what would happen after its reign? Verse 3 tells us, And I saw one of its heads 
as it had been wounded to, to death. And in other words, the beast would receive a deadly wound. Its power would be taken from it. And friends, when did this happen? It happened exactly after reigning for 1260 years. In fact, the Encyclopedia Americana says that in 1798, he, that is the French General Berthier, made his entrance into Rome, abolished the papal government, and established a secular one. From 538 to 1798 is exactly, friends, 1,260 years, just exactly as the Bible said the Antichrist beast would reign for. History confirms that that is what took place. And so characteristic six, write it down, it would be stripped of its power after its 1260-year reign. Now, would that be the end of the papacy? Not at all, because notice what happens next. Verse three, the rest of verse three. I saw one of its heads as it had been wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And after it's healed, what's gonna happen? And all the world wondered after the beast. So the Bible is prophesying that the wound it received in 1798 when it, was, when it was stripped from its political power, that that power, that wound would be healed. In other words, the papacy would regain the power. And when they do, all the world would follow the beast. And friends, that is happening right now before our very eyes. The wound is not fully healed yet because the papacy doesn't have the power it used to have in the dark ages. But it's being healed, friends. The Bible is saying that the papacy would regain worldwide influence, prestige, and prominence. And that's what we're seeing. Remember when the previous pontiff visited the United States for the first time, people drove for hours and packed entire stadiums just to get a glimpse. And people would come and they would bow down and worship as if he was some type of God on earth. And even our American presidents would call him Holy Father. But Jesus said, call no man on earth your father, for you have one father, and that's God in heaven. And so we see, friends, the wound is being healed right before our very eyes. And when, the, when our current pope uh, was elected, the whole world was watching and waiting. All over the world, people were rejoicing. All the world wondering after the beast, the wound is being healed. Time Magazine ran the article, New World Pope. It's a play on the New World Order, a pontiff that can bring us all together. And it's interesting that many Protestants and evangelical leaders are looking to the papacy as a leader in bringing us all together, claiming uh, or, or, or uh, gaining the, the, the respect and the support of presidents and, and kings all over the world, friends. And it's interesting that this pope is the first Jesuit pope. Do you remember we talked about the Jesuits the other night? The purpose of the Jesuit order by uh, Ignatius Loyola in the 1500s, it was the, the primary purpose, the Jesuit order, it was the secret society of the Catholic Church. And the reason why they came into existence was for the sole purpose of stamping out Protestantism and establishing popery. And they do it under a disguise, infiltrating in order to get rid of uh, Protestantism. And that's exactly what's happening. I, we, we don't have the time to go into that right now, but we have, a, we have a whole bunch of other studies in our DVDs that explain that. But notice we continue. Number seven, it would regain worldwide prominence at the end of time. And by the way, let me be quick to remind us, 
again, we're not talking about the, 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 the Francis as an individual. I'm sure he's a nice person. We're not judging him, friends. God is his judge. We don't see his heart. Amen? God is the one that's going to judge his heart, but Jesus did say, you shall know them by their fruits. And what is the fruits? It's the teachings. It's what they're saying. It's their doctrines. It's their beliefs. So it's not a problem to judge the fruit as long as we don't judge the root. Amen? We're not standing in judgment upon anyone's personal, individual relationship with God. God is the judge. But God is revealing not, or talking not about people, talking about a system or the office of the person. Now, is that, if that's clear, please say amen. Now, what about the mysterious number 666? Many people think that 666 is the mark of the beast. But friends, 666 is not the mark of the beast. 666 is another identifying characteristic as to who the beast is. Notice what it says. We're going to find out what it means. Revelation 13, 18, here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding do what? Count. The Greek word is calculate. Same thing. Count or calculate the number of what? Of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, threescore, and six. Notice, friends, it does not say that 666 is the mark of the beast. It says 666 is the number of the beast or the number of a man. And if we have wisdom from heaven, we need to count or calculate that number. And so what is the official title of the man at the head of the papacy? What is the official title of the papacy? Here's what they say their title is, our Sunday visitor. Here's what they say. The official title of the papacy is Vicarius Philidae. That's Latin. It means vicar of the Son of God. So the official title of the papacy and the man at the head is Vicarius Philidae. It means vicar of the Son of God. Or, and friends, you know something interesting? The word vicar is the Latin word which is the equivalent to the Greek word anti. The word vicar and anti, it means the same thing. So he is the vicar of Christ. It means the anti of Christ. They're saying that our official title is antichrist. Remember, the word anti doesn't mean so much against Christ, but ones that, one that puts themselves instead of or in the place of Christ. Now, if you take this Latin title, Vicarius Philidae, each letter has a Roman numeral value. And if you look it up and um, add the numerical value of all the different letters of the name of the man at its head, guess how much it equals to? Exactly 666. God made it abundantly clear who the beast is. And that's the last characteristic. The number of the name of the man at its head will equal to exactly 666. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? You're going to get all of that on the handout on your way out tonight. Don't worry about it. And so now that we've clearly identified the beast, we can now find out what the mark of the beast is. And friends, you don't want to miss this. We're, we're right at the punchline. We know who the beast is. Now, who, what, what is the mark of the beast? Friends, it can't be a literal tattoo or computer chip because everything else was symbolic. The beast, image, name, number, seal is symbolic. The mark has to be symbolic as well. It can't be something literal if everything else is symbolic because we have to be consistent in our interpretation. Can you say amen? 
And so what exactly is it? Well, let's review the characteristics of the mark. We know who the beast is. Now the characteristics of the mark. It will involve counterfeit worship. Number two, it, would, it must be a counterfeit law that would oppose God's law. Number three, whatever it is, it would require government enforcement. Number four, the mark of the beast would be the counterfeit to God's sign, God's seal, which is God's Sabbath. And friends, when you look at the Ten Commandments, which is the only commandment that Satan would counterfeit that would match the characteristics of what the mark of the beast is? Friends, the only commandment in the, in the Ten that would match the counterfeit mark of the beast would be the fourth commandment because that the fourth commandment has to do with has to do with worship has to do with the authority and the name of God and so what is the mark of the beast then well friends listen if the roman catholic church claims or is the mark is the beast according to the bible we just have to ask now what do they claim is the mark of their authority because remember the mark of the beast is the mark of the beast so we know what the beast is. Now we just ask them, what's your mark? What's the sign of your authority? And friends, they will tell us plainly what it is. And so do you want to know what it is? Are you sure about that? If you want to know, let me hear you say amen. amen. Some of you, it seems like you don't really want to know. Do you want to know? Amen. Oh, well, let's pray. Father in heaven, please fill this room with your spirit. Fill our hearts with your spirit, dear God. What we're about to discover is so shocking. But please, dear God, help us to remember that you're not talking about people. You're talking about a man-made system. And Lord, tonight, help us to hear the shepherd's voice. Help us to put aside our own opinions and feelings and to reason clearly with the Scriptures and with your Spirit. Be with us now, Lord, as we reveal what the mark of the beast is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If... The Roman church state system is the beast. Now we have, all we have to do is ask them, what is your mark of authority? And here's their answer. I quote directly from them. Here's what they say. The church is above the Bible. And this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. So they say, we're above the Bible. We have more authority than God's word. And the proof that we have the authority is that we transferred the Sabbath to Sunday. And all the world accepts that change. That is our mark of authority. In fact, notice another one. Of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act, the change from Sabbath to Sunday. And the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters here the beast is telling us what their mark is and they're saying that we change the sabbath to sunday everyone accepts it all the protestants who claim to believe in the bible accept our change and that's proof that's our mark of authority notice another one protestants accept sunday rather than saturday as the day for public worship after the Catholic Church made the change. But the Protestant mind does not seem to realize that in observing Sunday, they are accepting the authority of the spokesman for the church, the Pope. They're saying that Protestants, you're keeping the day that we set apart, that we changed. And you don't realize it, 
But by doing so, you are accepting our authority. Now, friends, listen, many Protestants who are worshiping on Sunday don't know that, and if they're sincere keeping Sunday and they never heard about the Sabbath, God sees their sincerity. Can you say amen? There's no condemnation for being in darkness. But friends, when we understand what it means, we're not going to want to do that because it is truly accepting the authority of the, what the Bible calls the beast. It's the mark of the beast. Notice another one, friends. Ecclesiastical Review, here's what the church says. They, talking about Protestants, deem it their duty to keep Sunday holy. Why? Because the Catholic Church tells them to do so. They have no other reason. The observance of Sunday thus comes to be an ecclesiastical law entirely distinct from the divine law of Sabbath observance. The author of the Sunday law is the Catholic Church. The beast is telling us what their mark is, and they are saying it is Sunday, the Sunday law, Sunday worship. Notice another one. Um, The observance of Sunday by Protestants is an homage they pay in spite of themselves to the what? Authority of the Catholic Church. They're saying that our mark of authority is the fact that we change the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Notice another one. We can go on and on. It says, most Christians assume that Sunday is the biblically approved day of worship. The Catholic Church protests that it transferred Christian worship from the biblical Sabbath, Saturday, to Sunday. And that to try to argue that the change was made in the Bible is both dishonest and a denial of Catholic authority. If Protestantism wants to base its teachings only on the Bible, it should worship on Saturday. And friends, these are true statements, and this is what I love about the Catholic Church, and that is they are completely honest. They make no bones about it. They say, we made the change. We did. They don't try to hide it. They say plainly, yes, we did it. We did it. Get a life. We did it. (laughs) And we can appreciate that tonight, amen? We can appreciate the fact that they're completely honest. Now, the thing about Protestants, though, is we try to beat around the bush and say, oh, and we try to make an argument that it's in the Bible, but it's just not there, friends. We need to be honest as well and acknowledge what the Bible teaches. And so what is the mark of the beast? In case you missed it, here it is in plain language. The mark of the beast is Sunday worship, friends. That's what the mark of the beast is, Sunday worship. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say right now. That does not mean that those who worship on Sunday are lost, not at all. Do you know why? Because many people who are worshiping on Sunday don't realize that that's not the Sabbath. They've been brought up thinking that that's the Sabbath, and, and, and they're sincere in doing so. They're wonderful, loving Christians, and they're following Jesus according to all the light they have. Can you say amen? And many of them are going to be saved in God's kingdom. Why? Because God doesn't judge us uh, based upon something we never heard of. He only holds us accountable to follow the light we have. And so this does not mean that those who are at worship on Sunday are lost or evil or bad people because many of them have never heard this before. Does that make sense? But remember, in the last days, everyone is going to have an opportunity to hear this issue, and thus we'll have to make a decision based upon it. Now, let's go a little bit deeper. I want you to notice, BBC News, the Pope demands respect for Sunday. The papacy is actually pushing for a national Sunday law. 
They're wanting to enforce the mark of their authority by making a national Sunday law, forcing people to worship on the day that they set apart for worship. In fact, notice, in his sermon, the Pope said that leisure was a good thing amid the mad rush of the modern world, but warned of the dangers of it becoming wasted time. Then they quote the Pope, give the soul its Sunday and give Sunday its soul, the Pope said. The Pope was visiting Austria not only as a pilgrim, but as a missionary. And friends, that was the previous one, but the the current one does the exact same thing. It's the same office, the same mission. Traveling the world, it's a push and a call back for people to revive Sunday keeping the first day of the week. In fact, notice another news article. Without Sunday worship, we cannot live, a direct quote from Benedict. The German Pope voiced a strong call for Christians to revive Sunday keeping as an all-important religious practice. Sunday worship, he warned, was not just a precept to be casually adhered to, but a necessity for all people. They're having a push to revive Sunday, and eventually it will lead to a national Sunday law. That would be the mark of the beast. Notice what the Catechism says. In respecting religious liberty and common good of all, Christians should seek recognition of Sundays and the church's holy days as what kind of holidays? Legal holidays. They want to make it a law, friends. Not just an option or recommendation. They're wanting to do a national Sunday law, a legal holiday. It is time that we demonstrate our Catholic vitality and engage in the public policy debate. They wanted to get into politics with this. We have the power and the people to embark on this movement, a movement that will benefit all Americans. And so what is one of the goals of the church? To push for a national Sunday law. And by the way, the bill is right there sitting in Congress. It was was proposed in 1888, the the Blair Bill. Just look in history. A Sunday blue law was, 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 was brought before Congress, but it was shot down back then. But There are people who want to revive it. Notice what else the catechism says. The civil authorities, the what kind of authorities? Those are not religious. Those are political. The civil authorities should be urged to cooperate with the church in maintaining and strengthening this what? Public worship of God. And to support support with their own authority. What kind of authority? Civil authority. The regulations set down by the church's pastor. For it is only in this way that the faithful will understand why it is Sunday and not the Sabbath day that we keep holy. It makes sense, doesn't it? It fits exactly what the Bible is saying. Pushing for a Sunday law that is enforced by government, by civil laws, forcing people to set apart the first day of the week as a day for worship. Now, friends, if the Sabbath is the outward sign of the inward seal of God, then Sunday worship would be the outward sign of the inward deception. Did you catch that? If the seven-day Sabbath is just the outward sign of the inward seal of God, then Sunday, in contrast, would simply be the outward deception or outward uh, uh, sign of the inward deception. What inward deception? The deception thinking that you can just choose one day out of seven despite what God says. The deception thinking that you can just follow the crowd and do what everyone else is doing and it's going to be okay. The deception that you can make your own law and do your own thing. And that's a deception, friends. 
Let's go a little bit deeper. You see, friends, the, the, the Sabbath is a sign of God's finished work. He worked six days and He finished it. The Sabbath is a sign that He finished the work. But Sunday, the first day of the week, is the beginning of man's incomplete work. The first day of the week is, man, is when man is supposed to begin the work week. So the first day is a symbol of man's work, but it's an incomplete work. In the same way, the seal of God represents salvation by grace, God's work, His completed work in our lives. Whereas the mark of the beast, the inward deception would be salvation by man's works, thinking that we can work our own way. Choosing a work day instead of the holy day is an outward sign of thinking that we can work our way to heaven. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now, friends, I want to share with you a few more things before we close. We're almost finished. St. Catherine's Catholic Church Centennial. This is a very amazing statement by the church. Here's what they say. Are you ready for this? Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the Scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. Then they say, people who think that the Scriptures should be the sole rule of authority. Friends, how many of you believe that the Scriptures should be the sole rule of authority? If you believe that the Scriptures should be the sole rule of authority, let me hear you say amen. amen. If you're sure about that, let me hear you say amen again. Amen. Well, people just like you, they say, who believe that the Scriptures should be the sole rule of authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. I didn't say that. That's what they said, friends. And that's a true statement. In fact, they say it again in another place. Notice this letter. We also say, here's the, here's the Catholic Church uh, official saying, we also say that of all Protestants, the Seventh-day Adventists are the only group that reason correctly and are consistent with their teachings. It is always somewhat laughable to see Protestant churches in pulpit and legislature demand the observance of Sunday of which there is nothing in the Bible. And that's true, friends. Wow, amazing statements. Now, one last question before we close, or actually two last questions. Does anyone have the mark of the beast today? The answer is no. Why? Because there is no Sunday law yet. There's a push for it. There's a bill in Congress for it. There's a movement in the evangelical world calling for it, but it's not legislated by law yet. Therefore, no one has the mark of the beast yet because it's not going to be the mark until it's enforced by government. And friends, the other reason, of course, is because most people have never heard this before. Can you say amen? Most people who worship on Sunday never heard it. And they're sincere in keeping Sunday, and God sees their sincerity. But friends, in the last days, we can't plead ignorance and say, but God, you know, I, I didn't know. Because remember, the three angels, it's a call to true worship and a warning against false worship. In the last days, this message will be given to the whole world. It will, it will be brought before the attention of all. And when the knowledge comes, it's then people will have to make a decision either to follow God or follow a law of man, receiving the mark of the beast or receiving the seal of of God. Does that make sense? And so we cannot say, God, I'm just going to do what my grandma and grandpa did. You know, they kept Sunday all their life. It was good enough for them. It's good enough for me. It might have been good enough for them, friends, because they didn't know about the Sabbath. 
And they're going to be saved in God's kingdom if they were sincere and they didn't know better, keeping Sunday. But we can't do what they did and expect God to look at us the same because Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. God holds us accountable to the light that he has given to us. Does that make sense, friends? And so, uh, and, if, and by the way, if grandma and grandpa heard what you heard tonight, and if they truly loved the Lord, they would make a decision to follow Jesus. Can you say amen? And we need to do the same thing. In the last days, no one will be able to plead ignorance. Everyone will have to make this decision. And many of you wonder, well, how will the Sabbath Sunday issue be brought before the attention of the world? It's going to happen very rapidly, friends. Let me explain it very quickly. We usually have a whole presentation on this part. Let me give you the two-minute version. It will be brought before the attention of the world by the power and authority of the second beast found in Revelation 13. It's the second beast that enforces the mark of the beast in the form of a national Sunday law. And only when political legislation is passed, enforcing Sunday worship as the law of the state, will individuals then receive the mark of the beast. Well, some of you might be wondering, well, how can a national Sunday law actually be enforced? How can that be enforced? Very simple. By the regulating of buying and selling. Notice how the second beast will enforce the mark. It says, and that no man may what? Buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. The way in which they can enforce it is by the regulating of buying and selling. And friends, in recent financial crises here in America and all around the world, as the government bailed out these large financial institutions, guess what? If they bailed them out, now they have the authority and the power to regulate the buying and the selling. And so the stage is set, friends, for the enforcement of a national Sunday law. And they might use a computer chip or some type of card to see if you have the mark, to see if you're going along with the Sunday worship law. But remember, that's not the mark of the beast. That might be how it will be enforced. But what it is, is something totally different. And by the way, it, it, we see it happening because in 2008, when the financial crisis took place here, the pontiff of that time, capitalized on the opportunity, and notice what he said, quoting in, New, in US uh, A Today. Pope Benedict today called for the reforming of the United Nations and establishing a, quote, true world political authority with real teeth to manage the global economy with God-centered ethics. The papacy is wanting a global authority to regulate the buying and selling according to God-centered ethics. But what version, what brand of God-centered ethics do you propose they are proposing? Do you think they're proposing? Theirs, of course. Do you see the stages being set? And friends, we could read quote after quote and show evidence after evidence. We don't have the time. We're finished tonight. But let me just say this. When that happens and we see it happening now, then we're going to have to decide who we're going to follow, Jesus Christ or the Antichrist the beast or the lamb, the commandments of God or the traditions of the church, Sabbath or Sunday. And friends, tonight, we cannot wait till then to decide. We must decide right now what we're going to do. Because decisions right now that we make today are preparing us for whatever decision we're going to make then. In other words, now is the time to prepare. 
And today, if we're accustomed to compromising and rationalizing and procrastinating decisions for a more convenient time, if we're used to doing that now, then we're going to make the wrong decision when the test is brought before us. But if today we're, we're, we're getting into the habit of being faithful to God, of making decisions for Christ and not putting all things off and, and, and following the Lord because we love Him, if we are making decisions now in the small things, when that big test comes, we will not fold. We're going to stand firm and make a decision to reject the mark of the beast and receive the seal of God. Though the whole world might be against us, we're going to stand firm. And so don't think you can leave here tonight and continue to go and do what you want to do. Friends, tonight we're preparing for tomorrow. Can you say amen? Right now is the, we're living in a time of peace. And if we can't be faithful in the little things, Jesus says, what makes us think we're going to be faithful in the bigger things that is to come? And some people say, well, I'll just worship on both days, Sabbath and Sunday. Well, friends, when you re realize what Sunday represents, you're not going to want to do that. Why? Because Jesus said no man can serve two masters. And when you understand what the day Sunday represents, you're going to say, no, thank you. I want to serve Jesus Christ, the one true God, the creator and savior of the world. Can you say amen? And so, those who reject the mark of the beast will be cut off economically. They will not be able to buy or sell. And I know that that sounds scary, but fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now we close with these precious promises in Isaiah 33, 16. He shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munition of rocks. Bread shall be given him, and his water shall be sure. We might be cut off economically from man, but we will not be cut off from God. God will take care of his own. We will have bread enough to spare. Our water is going to be sure, and so we don't have to be afraid. Our bread and our water is going to be sure. Amen? Not only that, but the Bible says he shall give his angels charge over thee. The angels will come to protect us outwardly. And the seal of God will preserve us inwardly. But tonight we must decide which path we're going to walk upon. Are we going to go the broad way of the majority, the easy road, or the narrow road of the minority? Tonight I want to say like the apostles of old said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And as for me and my house, here is where I stand by the grace of God. And tonight Christ is wondering, where do you stand? What road are you going to follow? Who will you put first? Will you stand for Jesus now? Will you stand for him then? You can only stand for him then if you stand for him now. And friends, the only reason why we can stand for him now is because Jesus stood for us on the cross, friends. He died for us. And through his sacrifice, all the world was against him. And yet, he remained faithful to his mission, and he remained until his mission was finished. And because of his love for us, we can stand for him. Amen? Friends, I know that this might sound scary, but perfect love cast out fear. So all we need to do, friends, is this. Fall in love with Jesus. Learn to love Jesus. And we love him because he first loved us and so when we love Jesus when we are filled with his love what happens is perfect love cast out fear and Jesus said if you love me keep my commandments love is the fulfilling of the law
So this is not a doom and gloom message. It's a message of love, amen? And how many of you love Jesus tonight? If so, I invite you to stand with me as we pray. And by standing, we're saying, Lord, teach me to stand for you faithfully now in the small things so that when that final test comes, I will be standing as well. As your heads are bowed, as your eyes are closed, Father, Lord, we've heard a very shocking message tonight. But Lord, it makes sense. We see it from the Bible. We see the prophecy being fulfilled before our eyes. Lord, help us not to be afraid. Remind us often, Lord, that we have nothing to fear when Jesus is near. And that as long as our life is hid in Christ, we are sealed, preserved, and saved. Father, as we've learned this truth about the mark of the beast and the seal of God, we're now brought face to face with a decision tonight. And Lord, I want to pray for my friends, especially those who have heard this for the first time. I know how shocking it was when I first heard it. But I pray, Lord, for them and for all of us. Help us to make the decision tonight, Lord, to stand for you. And not just to understand truth, but to walk in the truth, to make a decision for truth. And for those who, who you are calling to seal their decision in baptism and rebaptism and joining God's remnant church by their profession of faith. Oh Lord, please give them courage to respond and to make that decision. Thank you so much for blessing us. Bless us now as we leave. Bring us back tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Let all of God's children say, Amen.